Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox Inside the Racial Pharmacon, a podcast examining anti-racist theories and practices aimed at dismantling destructive identitarian politics and ideologies, both in the U.S. and abroad. Please note that discussions deal with very difficult subject matter, so every episode comes with a general content warning. And I'm your host, Carlos Gallego, Associate Professor of English, as well as both Distinguished Teaching Professor in Humanities here at St. Olaf College. This podcast is part of the programming brought to you by the Bolt Chair Endowment. So special thanks to the Bolt family for making this programming possible. If you enjoyed today's podcast, make sure to subscribe for future episodes. And now, the show. Hello, and welcome to the Identity Paradox. We're coming to you from downtown Minneapolis. Today is Friday, April 29th. So even though this episode will probably be uploaded at some point in May, early May, May 2nd, May 3rd, around that time. Uh, just know that I did try my best to fill the monthly quota, but April has been an unusually cruel month as the famous British poet slash from St. Louis, America, or Zura, I guess, America, uh, claimed. So apologies for the late drop, but uh, yes, we are trying our best to uh, make that monthly quota. Uh, so may may end up having two episodes. Um, Today's episode is about why identity politics um, is not an antidote to capitalist crisis. And I think it's a very important topic to touch upon at this current moment because of the uh, political economic crisis or situation that uh, the US seems to find itself in at the moment, um, at this moment, uh, specifically talking about issues regarding affordable housing, issues regarding uh, access to healthcare, issues regarding student uh, debt relief, um, issues regarding wage stagnation, uh, and the overall polarization of wealth in the nation uh, is becoming a bigger problem. Um, and it's, uh, it's getting exacerbated by many of the policies that are being passed or are not being passed regarding things like corporate tax relief and the uh, allowance of corporate mergers, things of this nature, uh, which end up disempowering the working class. In addition to that disempowerment, we are being bombarded and discouraged from critically thinking about capitalism's failures and inconsistencies uh, and thinking of a remedy to that, um, the manufactured crisis specifically that capitalism creates uh, at times, uh, part of the inherent logic that Marx famously criticized. And instead we're encouraged to uh, and distracted by culture war propaganda, which is happening uh, across the nation right now which keeps, I think, the working class uh, not only distracted, but keeps it from, uh, maintains it in this infighting mode that uh, becomes a great challenge to working class solidarity and the formation of a working class movement. Uh, because a working class movement might actually result in a working class political party that would then uh, present a serious threat to the established duopoly currently dominated by both the Republican and Democratic parties. So consequently, I think that the culture wars serve a very specific function, especially when capitalism is undergoing uh, the current crisis that it is, especially in this country, again, around basic needs. And a working class party uh, in many ways would be more interested, I would assume, in the declining conditions of existence that most Americans are experiencing, again, in regards to basic needs like shelter, food, 
and medicine uh, instead of prioritizing the health of corporations and banks, which is what the capitalist model favors. And we saw a lot of that in 2008. And we're seeing a lot of that right now. There's a lot of money that is being uh, indirectly or directly given to the military industrial complex uh, over the Ukraine-Russia conflict that is taking place right now, what many people want to call the invasion of uh, Ukraine. But I think it Personally, that's a geopolitically complex situation because of the expansion of NATO and the agreements that uh, the Soviet Union, before it became no longer the Soviet Union, became Russia, uh, some agreements regarding NATO expansion. And um, it's a it's a very complicated issue, and there's a lot of misinformation in the fact that the United States now has a ministry of truth or something equivalent to that, I think speaks to the fact that we are living a moment where information and what is reality, whether that's the pandemic, whether that's whether or not students are going to get any kind of student cancellation, to what extent, it's almost like a form of gaslighting in terms of the information that we're getting right now, which again goes very much hand in hand with this notion of culture wars being used to distract uh, from working class uh, issues uh, and specifically capitalism's contradictions, failures, and prohibiting a kind of working class solidarity and the emergence of a working class consciousness around these issues. And that's not to dismiss that what's happening in Ukraine right now is not important or does not uh, entail material conditions of existence. Obviously, people are suffering and dying in that situation. But how that problem emerged, I think, has a very long history to it. And that's what I'm referring to in terms of the complexity of that uh, situation. So what I want to begin uh, with today is to give what I consider personally an obscenely uh, oversimplified uh, overview of capitalism uh, from its emergence uh, from feudalism to what we now call neoliberalism, uh, specifically in terms of three stages. And in order to do that, I am going to be uh, try something new in this episode, which is sharing some uh, slides from a PowerPoint presentation in order to provide some visuals and some definitions. So in an effort to share with you what I am actually talking about, this is the obscenely brief outline of capitalism's progression in regards to three specific stages. And those stages are the proto-capitalist stage, the early stage that represents the transition from feudalism to what we not understand to be a capitalist political economy. Uh, and that is the settler colonial phase, uh, I, would, I would say, uh, intersects very concretely and directly with the emergence of proto-capitalist uh, markets uh, or at least market types of trading. Um, the emergence of the nation state being the next phase, which actually introduces the official enlightenment model of free market capitalism as theorized by people like Adam Smith. And finally, the current neoliberal model of capitalism that we are living under, which uh, it can be characterized by uh, global capitalism that functions under a model of corporate deregulation. In other words, corporations function almost as independent entities and governments are meant to stay out of their business as a means of promoting free market capitalism. Uh, and that that progression towards neoliberalism is in many ways going to speak to why identity politics cannot function as an antidote to capitalist crisis, but it's also going to explain the uh, coexistence and the uh, kind of synchronous emergence and development of capitalism with an identity politics already embedded in it. And that's what this next slide uh, represents. 
in order to describe this progression, I want to give a working definition of what culture wars are. And this is what this next slide represents. Apologies, not quite next, um, not quite at the slide that's going to explain the synchronicity yet. I want to define culture wars concretely so that we have a working definition for the purposes of this episode. So I define, I define culture wars in the following manner. The ideological practice of foregrounding in particular cultural identities and practices as problematic or threatening in an effort to obfuscate, to confuse, to distract uh, from the failures of capitalism, specifically the role capitalism plays in manufacturing these so-called problems in the first place. And it's also culture wars, culture wars are also a strategy used to recruit and mobilize citizens in favor of specific politicians and parties. So depending on what type of cultural war you, you, you fall on, you will probably gravitate towards that political uh, party or that individual politician. So three current examples of cultural wars taking place across the United States. We have critical race theory, right? Which in this case entails the banning of books and authors across the country. Uh, we have uh, the don't say gay legislation taking place in Florida, which basically criminalizes sexual identity, specifically uh, the LGBTQT plus uh, community, specifically within that community, trans individuals. And in many ways, it also criminalizes people who are trying to assist people who are in the process of transitioning or have transitioned by, by calling them or labeling them groomers and in some cases criminalizing them as such. So, and these could be parents that are actually trying, you know, loving parents trying to help their children understand their transition or why they may feel that they have inhabited a, the wrong body and don't identify that way. Uh, if you're a parent that's trying to, in a loving manner, educate your child about what that experience is, what that experience is, you can be uh, accused of being a groomer. And if not that, then, or in addition to that, possibly even prosecuted under some of these new laws. So uh, there's essentially a war being declared, not only against critical race theory, but also against the LGBTQ plus community, specifically in states like Florida. And finally, the uh, I brought it down on the slide, as you can see, the pro-life is the only choice now, which is a play on words between pro-life and pro-choice. Uh, and that has to do with the excessively aggressive anti-abortion laws that are being passed in places like Texas and Oklahoma, which in many ways criminalize a woman's right to decide what to do with their bodies, uh, specifically when it comes to reproductive rights. So again, criminalizing people teaching race, criminalizing uh, identities that uh, identify as trans and criminalizing women who attempt to assert any kind of right over their bodies and choosing what to do with their bodies. So now I can get to the historical synchronicity slide, which kind of shows how identity politics and capitalism have evolved together in conversation with each other. And as a consequence, why identity politics consistently fails as a remedy to capitalist crisis. And this next slide represents it. So the synchronicity between capitalism and identity politics, a thesis. Yes, that's a silly title to the slide, but I didn't know what to call it uh, because it is a thesis that I'm promoting, uh, that I'm positing, that I'm presenting. Uh, and it's in the fancy font because it's for fancy men. Uh, white men create laws that promote the economic and overall existential prosperity of future white men. That is the identity politics that was already inherent to the development of 
capitalism, whether it's the proto-capitalist stage, whether it's the early nation state stage, or whether it is a current model of neoliberalism, which looks a little bit more multicultural, and we'll talk about that. But at the end of the day, it always follows this specific rule that white men create laws that promote the economic and overall existential prosperity of future white men, even when they're passing laws that are supposedly benefiting others who are not white men. It always takes place at a specific historical moment or under, under specific historical conditions that force that movement to take place uh, or that change to take place. But it's always these new, like the civil rights laws, these, this legislation will be couched in such a manner that white men will not, will not be disempowered as such from this primary position, specifically uh, their positionality of power in regards to the political economy of capitalism. And this goes um, as far back as the Declaration of Independence. And we can see this kind of long-term generational thinking in this you know, foundational document to this country uh, in the sense that not everyone was included in the all men are created, created equal um, thesis that is supposed to characterize American democracy. So obviously women were not included in that model, which is why it's gendered. It's not only gendered because that was, was the kind of preferred uh, term uh, for the historical moment, man and mankind as opposed to humanity. But it also kind of betrayed the fact that this was a gendered politics, that women were not going to participate in the public sphere as the way that men were. And obviously it did not include people of color, whether they were African slaves, because obviously they're slaves, they're not even considered human, or indigenous peoples that already lived in this country uh, prior to the arrival of European immigrants. And as a consequence, we see that othering, we see that uh, reference to the racialized other as less than human. And in this case, we see it in the following quote, which is one of the uh, abuses listed in the Declaration of Independence as evidence uh, that the colonies have no choice but to rebel against the British crown. He, the king, has excited domestic insurrections, basically fighting amongst or within the colonies amongst us and has endeavored to bring on the inhabitants of our frontiers right so notice the language inhabitants people already live here of our frontier so even though these people that we're referring to lived here before we got here we have now taken their land and we have created a frontier and they are on the other side of that it's an invisible border essentially and now native americans indigenous peoples are on the other side of the land that they previously occupied so the king is recruiting the inhabitants of our frontiers, and this is a key sentence, the merciless Indian savages, right? So Native American indigenous peoples are referred to as savages in this famous document. And the following is what I find grotesque, whose known rule of warfare is an undistinguished destruction of all ages, sexes, and conditions, which I find grotesque because that was the model of warfare that the Europeans actually introduced to the new world. The killing of women and the killing of children and the killing of disabled individuals was not something that Europeans shied away from in the process of conquering, whether it's in Mexico or whether it's in what would be called the United States. So at the end of the day, this model of a genocidal displacement, if you will, was being practiced by Europeans in the Crusades, which in many ways functioned as a precursor 
to what would happen in the quote unquote new world. Much of the warfare, much of the tactics, much of the strategies were already taking place by the invasion of Europeans into Middle East territories under the banner of Christianity. So the first concept that I want to uh, address is this notion of settler colonialism and briefly explain what it is and why it functions as a form of uh, proto-capitalism. Essentially, settler colonialism functions under the model of invade, occupy, and essentially do what the title says, you settle. This is a very feudal and monarchical model, right? It takes, it, this happened before the American Revolution. So as the colonies were becoming the 13 colonies that would eventually rebel, they were practicing settler colonialism. And this is not necessarily the capitalists we're accustomed to because, uh, again, it's very monarchical. So it, involve, it involves wealth, involves kingly bloodlines, uh, aristocratic families, uh, being loyal to the crown or specific aristocratic families that might be the next in line for the crown. Uh, so settler colonialism eventually evolved uh, and allowed for the nation state to develop. And we see that in this slide, and, and I'll explain why and how, because without the settler colonialism model, without the 13 colonies, there is no United States. And the United States as a nation that was rebelling a new foundation that declared itself as a nation that was rebelling against an empire, a monarchical empire, uh, in many, many ways set the template for what democracy would look like. And I think this slide again represents that uh, in terms of the settler colonial mindset. On the left-hand side of the slide, for those of you listening uh, on the podcast, uh, the audio version, if you want to look at some of these visuals, uh, they uh, all of the visuals actually, they will be available on the identityparadox.com, our website. So make sure to check them out on the notes or to check them out now as you're listening so that um, it's a little bit more coherent uh, in terms of what I'm talking about. So on the left-hand side, uh, we have an advertisement, Indian land for sale, which highlights the fact that this land used to belong to indigenous peoples, Native Americans. It was taken away from them, and it's now it's for sale, and it's for sale by white men to other white men, because at this moment in history, it was very difficult for women to own property. Therefore, it was usually a male enterprise, right? white males take away land from indigenous peoples, appropriate it as theirs, and then end up selling it to other white people who are coming to the country and looking to settle here. So again, and I think it's interesting that they represent, you know, the Indian land is not civilized yet, so you can get a home of your own and you can engage in agriculture and irrigation, et cetera, uh, because a, according to the implication of the advertisement, indigenous peoples were not doing this. So it's time to civilize the land. And that's a very popular model of settler colonialism. We're here to help you. We're here to convert you. We're here to civilize you. I also included the architectural model of the slave ship, which is a picture at the bottom uh, left-hand corner because the African slave trade was crucial to the forming of this country and the mindset behind that kind of uh, treatment of human beings as things, as cargo, is very much part of that settler colonial crusade mentality that emerged from Europe and came to the new world. And all of that, I think, is represented in this very, very famous portrait uh, representing the embodiment of uh, the personification of manifest destiny and the figure of this white, fair-skinned, blonde woman who is uh, covered with a very a thin, 
uh, robe or dress or gown or what have you, which is also white. So the whiteness is highlighted. It's not, uh, it's obvious to the point of standing out. And what we see is two essentially worlds that manifest destiny is in many ways unifying in a violent manner that the picture does not uh, depict, but it implies, it suggests that. And by that, I mean, if you look at the left-hand side of the picture, I'll use the uh, cursor here to uh, point specifically, uh, if you're looking at this on video, the left-hand side of the portrait represents uh, indigenous peoples running away in terror from the spirit of manifest destiny, in addition to much of the wildlife, like the buffalo that were native to the, to, to the plains, for example, to the Midwest. And what we see is the modernization, the industrialization, the civilizing of these native lands and of the people that inhabit them uh, by Europeans. And this is why we see gold diggers at the bottom of the screen. We see families in bandwagons. Uh, we see something that looks to be like a carriage uh, carrying either someone very rich or some cargo. Uh, we see the continental, what would be the transcontinental railroads essentially, uh, railroads in the background. And then a far back here, uh, we see what could be a representation of the East Coast, which in many ways embodies the, the modernization that European nations are bringing to the new world, and therefore manifest destiny is God's way of telling white Europeans that it is their duty, almost their burden, to carry forth civilization uh, to these non-civilized peoples like the indigenous peoples of the Americas or Africans living in Africa. So uh, contrary to settler colonialism, nation state capitalism um, ensures a political economy that allows for the democratization of wealth. So as opposed to the settler colonial proto-capitalist model that is still very feudal and still involves kings, by the time we get to the nation state, there's supposed to be a democratization of that wealth. And that's what this next slide demonstrates. At this point, we're getting to the free market laissez-faire capitalism that Adam Smith famously theorized in The Wealth of Nations. It's a very enlightenment philosophy. This is a time of nation states. This is a time where the United States declares independence from the British crown. Um, and again, that uh, capacity, the power to declare independence was very much based upon the settler colonial model that allowed for things like slavery. Now, the difference between uh, settler colonialism and uh, the, the capitalism, the free market capitalism of the nation state is that it allows for the emergence of a new class. And this will be your, your, your bourgeois class, the middle class uh, represented by individuals like uh, Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin, both of them seen on, on this document here, signing the Declaration of Independence. I don't know if it's Ben Franklin signed it or not. He was one of the authors, so he did help author it. And at the end of the day, what's important about that uh, signing of the declaration and the authoring by Thomas Jefferson and Ben Franklin and people like that is that they're the ones that called out the Indian savages. They're the ones that created that, dis that disparity of, of European, white European uh, citizens versus and humans versus the dehumanization of indigenous peoples as basically an extension of the land, which was a very popular theme during the US war with Mexico. So just to highlight the fact that 
even though this is called free market capitalism, it's important to highlight that this is still very much a capitalism for white men by white men. So that has not necessarily changed. And we see that the ugly secret to prosperity under the free market model, and you see this in people in the biographies of people like Thomas Jefferson, Ben Franklin, especially Ben Franklin, who's represented as an individualist. Uh, these are people who already had access to wealth. Their families already had property, and therefore they had the freedom to determine what they wanted to be, especially in the context of uh, Ben Franklin. So you need us if you don't have access to wealth, you need to sell your labor. And when you're doing that, it's very hard to accumulate enough wealth, especially now, in order to save money to invest in things like property and have your own home, etc. And which is how you accumulate wealth. So at this point, laissez-faire capitalism is, is trying to democratize wealth and access to it, but it's very much still uh, functioning under the identity politics of settler, settler colonialism, which benefits white male, uh, white European men specifically. So uh, that model uh, that's represented in the Declaration of Independence will reinvent itself uh, differently throughout different uh, stages, if you will, uh, throughout the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, ironically, the nation state capitalism uh, or the model of nation state capitalism, I should say, especially in the US developed because of that identity politics as already stated. So it weaponized the ideology of white identity politics in order to justify things like the African slave trade and later on to justify things like the invasion of Mexico by using the uh, Texas case study when Texas declared independence from Mexico, having belonged to Mexico, which is what initiated the US-Mexican war, a lot of the propaganda circulating at that time represented Mexico as equally uncivilized, as equally underdeveloped, like the West was, or like the United States was, under uh, indigenous peoples. So again, Europeans are doing these, you know, people, you know, as we call them now, people of color or these, you know, demographics, these racialized demographics, whether they be indigenous or whether they be, in this case, uh, Latinx or Mexican, uh, as inferior in some way or another and in need of a kind of assistance, whether they're asking for it or not. And that's what led to the US-Mexico war and the acquisition of more than 55% of Mexico's territory represented in that map in the bottom left-hand corner. So Texas annexed itself illegally, which is what led to the war in the first place. And then by the time the war was over, one that people like Henry Thoreau uh, you know, boycotted by not wanting to pay taxes, which is one of the moments of civil disobedience, one of the acts of civil disobedience, uh, Ulysses says Grant calling the war uh, against Mexico uh, a war of aggression, essentially the United States is being a bully, is very much demonstrated uh, by, oh, excuse me, is very much demonstrated by this map, uh, which shows how much territory the United States gained as a consequence of declaring this war with Mexico. Now, when a nation declares war against another nation, invades, occupies it, and takes its land, that is imperialism. That is when you essentially betray or in, in many ways, um, what's the word I'm looking for? When, when you 
disrespect the sovereignty of another nation in order to appropriate its resources. And that's a very important concept because imperialism usually functions under the colonial model. You go to another country, you populate it, you take it over, and eventually you assimilate it as part of your own nation or you maintain rights over that territory as a colony. Uh, European nations maintained that relationship with a lot of African colonies throughout the 20th century. The United States did not colonize Mexico. It appropriated Mexico's land. It forced Mexico to sell it, that land that the United States was going to take by force regardless. And as a consequence, that imperialist war allowed the United States to expand from sea to shining sea uh, and establish a transcontinental railroad from the Atlantic Ocean all the way to the Pacific Ocean, which allowed the United States to not only expand territorially, but get very rich very quickly. It allowed for the rapid development. So that's one of the ironic moments is that the dehumanization of other nations, in this case, Mexico, or other peoples, such as Africans and or indigenous peoples, is what allows for the uh, empowerment, both politically and economically, of nations like the U.S. that declare themselves to be democratic, but at the end of the day, uh, what they're doing is essentially uh, enriching themselves for the purposes of expanding, just like an empire, but this is the nation or the nation-state model of empire. Um, so primitive people need to be assimilated into history and therefore imperialism functions similarly to settler colonialism. Uh, and much of this is, as already said, about access to natural resources, uh, in addition to, uh, and by natural resources, I mean things like food, mineral, you know, oil in certain cases, uh, but also the land itself, which I think already highlighted, and the people who inhabit it. So in Mexico, for example, indigenous people became workers. In the United States, indigenous people were genocidally displaced. They were pushed further and further west, and we imported African slaves as cargo in order to do the work that Europeans were not doing for themselves. Uh, and this is all in very much a model of conquest that perpetuates profits and expands profits. Uh, and essentially, they're both models of empire. You can have empire under a monarchy like the British Empire, or you can have monarchy under a nation state like the American Empire. The idea is that you have a specific identity that has the agency and almost a historical destiny, again, manifest destiny, the historical duty to engage in that kind of civilized expansion. Um, so just to summarize quickly, the common denominator connecting identity politics and, proto, and the proto-capitalism of settler colonialism, as well as the more advanced industrial capitalism uh, made, po made possible by nation states, is a white supremacist uh, philosophy of manifest de destiny. However, the identity politics uh, was not strong enough, even white identity politics was not strong enough to counter the temptations of economic dominance um, and the political influence that comes with it. Thus, Western nations began to fight amongst themselves to see how they could divide the globe uh, around their respective geopolitical interests. And perhaps the most infamous example of this infighting among European nations is the uh, emergence and the rise of Nazism in the 30s and what the Nazis ended up doing across Europe. And for that, I will share uh, another slide that depicts this. So 
not only did imperialism impact inferior nations like Mexico and inferior nations like those found in, in Africa or inferior nations like those found in Latin America uh, or South America or Central America or parts of Asia, all of which in many ways can be uh, kind of grouped under the label of the global south. And that is a very important concept right now because as the United States and Europe keep talking about having the, the support of the world and the current efforts uh, against uh, Russia, uh, a lot of that does not include the global south. If you actually map what nations are engaged in this, most of the nations from Africa and uh, South America uh, and several Asian countries are not interested in involving themselves in this conflict because they see it as a very Western European conflict uh, that goes back uh, almost a century at this point uh, and involves uh, a very complex geopolitical history. So this slide represents Nazi imperialism in Europe. So these are white nations invading other white nations. Um, the problem is that most people don't tend to think of Nazism as an identity politics, but rather as a fascist movement that appealed to populist nationalism, which is accurate. I'm not saying that's wrong. However, what I'm saying is that the problem of Nazism is that it still asserted a primary identity to promote this politics. So even, even imperialism from one white country against another white country involves some kind of identity politics. And in the case of, um, identity politics within Nazism, it had everything to do with the concept of the Aryan. So uh, the, the Germans, as this uh, newspaper uh, headline uh, states, Germans invade and bomb Poland, Britain mobilizes. Britain, a white nation, is uh, preparing to engage in uh, war, essentially what they, they, they will declare war against uh, Germany. Uh, so that highlights the tensions. Germany just invaded another white nation, in this case, Poland. Uh, and as a consequence, uh, the identity politics needs to be revised. And there you see at the bottom a picture of Hitler uh, in front of the Eiffel Tower after the Battle of, uh, of for France. And so this, this map highlights the territories that Germany took. Um, during World War II, uh, obviously they didn't keep them because they lost the war, but they were very much expanding uh, their political dominance throughout Europe. Uh, they were gaining a lot of economic uh, benefits from it. They were profiting off of this war, uh, but at, at the same time, they were responding to what they considered to be the unjust conditions that were placed on it as a nation state after World War I. And both of these world wars were called, I think, the high state of, of, of imperialism, the highest state of capitalism by Lenin uh, for a reason. These are rich nations fighting to get even richer by starting to fight, by fighting amongst themselves. And Germany paid the price, literally, economically and politically after World War I. Nazi Germany emerged as a consequence of those unjust uh, punishments after World War I. And what, when, what you ended up getting is the revenge of Germany as Nazi Germany taking over the majority of Europe. So. Again, as I mentioned, the identity politics that the Nazis used against the rest of Europe was a concept of the Aryan. And I will uh, quote here specifically from uh, Wikipedia that I think gives a good functioning definition of how the Aryan race was used by the Nazis in order to promote their own version of manifest destiny. Uh, by the 1930s, a concept 
of the Aryan had been associated with Nazism and Nordicism. Nordicism has to do with the Northern European countries and Nordic countries, and used to support the white supremacist ideology of Aryanism, which portrayed the Aryan race as the master race, with non-Aryans as racially inferior, untermensch or undermensch, subhuman, and an existential threat to be exterminated. So not only are racialized others or non-Aryans or non-whites inferior, they are also a threat and they need to be exterminated. Under Nazi rule, these ideas formed an essential part of the state ideology that led to the Holocaust. And uh, you can check out those references, uh, but I think it's a very uh, useful definition in terms of how the Nazis created their own identity politics to justify invading other countries that were equally European and equally white, but the Nazis were claiming some kind of special unique identity by, claim, by laying claim to uh, the Aryan race or the Aryan model. Uh, thus, the imperialist model for capitalist accumulation began its subsequent decline after the two world wars. And like I said, Lenin famously called it the highest age of capitalism, mostly because it, it, it showed how humanity has uh, a capacity, a very, very uh, efficient uh, capacity for self-destruction. And that was represented in things like trench warfare in World War I, all the way to the development of nuclear weaponry in World War II and the development of death camps uh, during World War II. So in many ways, imperialism, the imperialism of World War I and World War II, once World War II ended, it's almost like your Western European nations got together and said, hey, we can't do this to each other anymore. Uh, imperialism amongst ourselves is bad. Even though they exported imperialism to the rest of the world and continued to use uh, that model. But again, not amongst each other. And that's why what's happening right now in Ukraine is such a big deal as opposed to what's happening in places like Palestine or happening in places like Ethiopia or happening in other places around the world. It's also important, important to note that the, de that the colonial legacies inherent to imperialism, uh, one of those being white supremacist ideology, fueled political and economic unrest, both in the US and abroad. So this no more imperialism uh, statement or slogan that emerged after World War II motivated people in the United States to start seeing how racism functioned here, not just the racism of Nazis against other non-Aryan Europeans, but also the racism of white people in the United States against African-Americans, against indigenous people, against Latinx people, et cetera, against Asian-Americans. Uh, people in the US started paying attention to that. And nations that function as European colonies also started to rebel against their, uh, their position as European colonies. So this not only, uh, so returning, sorry, returning to the theme of identity politics, it's important, I'll take the slide off. Um, it's important to understand that um, that dehumanization of those populations uh, that as non-white or as non-Aryan, as already said, um, intensified the white politics, but it also resulted in a necessary incorporation of the conquered or racialized other. And also, in other words, the nation state, if it was no longer gonna engage in imperialism, needed to uh, incorporate some type of racialized other. And the Nazis did this very well because the Nazis created the uh, myth of the Aryan as a way of justifying the otherness of the non-Aryan. And there's a very famous, and this is what I mean by 
the racialization or the other, sometimes you have to create the other uh, in order to justify your identity as superior, right? Which is what white Europeans did when it came to the new world or in the context of the crusades and what the Nazis did in the context of their uh, expansion throughout Europe is using the propaganda around the Aryan. And you can see that in, for example, films, uh, doc, the Nazi, the famous documentary, Nazi documentary film, The Triumph of the Will in 1935, where they promoted the idea of the Aryan. And here you see, you know, pictures of Ar Nazi youth, Aryans. You see uh, citizens on the streets showing their loyalty to uh, the Nazi party. Here you see the grandiosity of the Nazi party, again, demonstrated in an almost kind of manifest destiny, which is finally represented here when uh, Hitler posing in a very dramatic way, looking up to the heavens as if though he's being inspired um, by some divine uh, entity. On the left, on the right-hand side, rather of the side, you see the propagandistic film, The Birth of a Nation in 1915 uh, by W. Griffith, with that that represented both the inferiority and the threat of recently emancipated African-American slaves. So this uh, actor at the top here is actually in blackface and is supposed to represent the barbarity and the bestiality, if you will, of these, Af of these recently emancipated slaves and the threat that they pose, again, to people like uh, white women uh, and why the KKK was necessary to come in and emancipate a white women from the threat represented by the racialized other, in this case, an African-American. So the point is that I wanna highlight these connections in order to foreground the fact that those proclaiming themselves as masters always require an other, a type of slave to, to prove and justify their uh, master status. Uh, but with the nation state, as I already said, we started to see pushback against this. Uh, we saw, and that is what led to the emergence, for example, of uh, the civil rights model. So dehumanization is part of the capitalist model that started with settler colonialism. And this slide is meant to represent that. We have a picture on the left of a conquistador branding, uh, burning, essentially brandishing, uh, a uh, indigenous person uh, in a chain gang uh, as they're engaging in cheap labor. Again, the capitalist model of exploiting labor in, for the purposes of profit and enriching other people is very much already present there. Those people are part of our natural resources, our natural resource to be exploited. By the time, and the same thing is happening in the United States with uh, indigenous people and the genocidal displacement that we engaged uh, in order to make this land European and American specifically. We took that and you saw that in the advertisement. Again, the dehumanization of indigenous peoples as savages is documented in the Declaration of Independence. And at the bottom uh, corner on the right-hand side, you see uh, what looks to be a mother and a daughter, or potentially an older sister and a daughter. They could be African-American, they could be Native American, I'm not sure, but the point is that they're being sold as slaves on a market and they are being purchased by white men. So again, you dehumanize the other as a form of establishing some kind of master status. The problem with that is that essentially you end up with uh, the nation state. And again, this is the emergence of the concept of the United States as a nation independent from British monarchy. 
the concept of dehumanizing the other is essentially what culminated the concept of slavery, Africans, uh, African-Americans, Black people being enslaved uh, is what led to the American Civil War. But if you pay attention to that in the, during the American Civil War, African-Americans who were slaves or not were not allowed to create their own battalions and arm themselves. Why? Because there were white men fighting other white men to free Black slaves who were property at the time because freed slaves with guns are a threat to the nation, specifically the white supremacist model, the white identity politics. They might start to feel empowered in the same way that Frederick Douglass felt empowered by stating that I am not your slave and I'm not going to be a slave, which is why he is the, in many ways, the main figure of emancipation uh, behind uh, the civil rights from the African American, uh, from the Civil War, from the African American perspective. Uh, Frederick Douglass was already fighting his own enslavers as an individual, even before the Emancipation Proclamation. And essentially, because the nation state claims to be democratic, you're going to get to the point later on in history where uh, that dehumanization of the other, of the racialized other, has pushed back. And that is represented not only by Frederick Douglass, but by the Black Panther Party uh, and that picture on the far right where they're holding guns, uh, essentially uh, the underlying statement basically being that we carry our own guns now or our own weapons in order to police the police. And this is what happened after World War II. Um, and it's important to state in the context of all this that uh, both uh, settler colonialism and imperialism never really went away. They're still present today and they're, they're uh, evident in places like Palestine, settler colonialism. Uh, they're evident in places like Puerto Rico, settler colonialism slash imperialism. So that those practices haven't gone away. We just don't hear a lot about them because they usually are not uh, advertised or documented, if you will, or reported in mainstream media uh, because they don't happen in white European nations. That's the truth. A lot of this is still taking place. It's just taking place again, other people who are considered less than human to European nations. Sorry if you're hearing the honking in the background. Uh, it's a busy Friday. Um, so nevertheless, in light of the fact that, you know, in theory, imperialism and um, Settler colonialism don't no longer exist, um, and my point is that they still do. Nevertheless, capitalism did begin to evolve after World War II. Uh, many economic theorists and historians agree that the changes that resulted uh, from that evolution after World War II gave rise to neoliberalism as a new political and economic paradigm by the 1980s. So this is that transitional period when identity politics, as we understand it in both the US, emerges. Uh, but the historical timing of its emergence will result in both the confusion and easy appropriation. So let me explain what I mean by this for a second. Neoliberalism is the economic model that, as already stated, is based on deregulation and globalization. So this is what happens by the time we get to the 1980s. Um, it is basically uh, defined as a uh, as 
well, I'll just read the definition down here. It's basically a political economic philosophy that emphasizes the deregulation of businesses, as already said, no government uh, intervention, uh, in the spirit of free market capitalism. And this is why we have an environmental protection agency and we have something like a food and drug administration. You weaken those institutions so that they don't meddle in corporate business, um, whether that's transactions, deal makings, uh, creating new laws or weakening existing laws, all of that has to do with the neoliberal uh, philosophy of deregulation that in many ways was represented by politicians like Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan. Um, there's less public uh, programs uh, that offer assistance, so there's less public spending. Uh, you uh, take away money from things like uh, free lunches or education uh, or community programs, and you give that money to corporations in the form of tax incentives. Uh, just one example. So there's less public program offering assistance like free clinics and free school lunches. In addition to the perception and treatment of citizens as market consumers who are valued mostly uh, according to their buying power. And another major component to keep in mind is the systemic weakening of labor's political power, most commonly seen in union busting and state legislation outlying unions. This is what we call the right to work laws. Uh, so this weakening of labor is very much facilitated by neoliberalism's push towards globalization, uh, which exists only because of the imperialism that preceded it, right? We have access to other nations and access to cheap labor in other nations a lot of it, a lot of the time because of imperialist practices that preceded uh, our investment in those nations or our exportation of labor. Think, for example, of what we did with Mexico, how we weakened Mexico politically and economically, and how, why the maquiladora industry ended up taking place along the border in Mexico that benefited, uh, for the most part, American corporations. And we'll get to that argument in a bit. But just to finish this general description of neoliberalism, uh, it's uh, a globalization model that exports labor. Uh, it's a globalization model that promised a global village uh, kind of a coming together of humanity. And that's something I think that Hillary Clinton actually said in the 90s. Um, but at the end of the day, all of this came uh, at the cost of exporting labor to impoverished nations, allowing corporations to basically pay in terms of slave wages. And I've seen some of these, uh, you know, in Mexico, for example, maquiladoras, the highest price, highest paid workers get paid something like 25 cents an hour. Uh, so even though they don't call, even though Donald Trump was honest in the sense that, that he referred to these nations that we exploit as shithole countries and we don't want to import people from them. That's why we don't want Mexicans. We don't want to build a wall. At the end of the day, current neoliberalism, which supposedly functions under a global model of democracy, nevertheless has a, an identity politics that views others nations as inferior and that inferiority is historically established by things like imperialism, the War of 1848 with Mexico, or even before that, settler colonialism, which is Europeans are going to bring civilization to this continent. Um, the tragedy behind this development of neoliberalism uh, after World War II, after you, Western European nations said, hey, we can invade each other, invading other countries is bad, unless you go do it in the global south. Um, the tragedy is that neoliberal, neoliberalism and its development paralleled the rise of radical leftist movements in the US that were protesting US imperialism in the first place in places like Vietnam, and a lot of that had to do with the draft. Um, and so just to finish up with this slide, uh, 
I went over neoliberalism, this map that represents uh, the corporate takeover of uh, global, uh, the global capitalist model uh, is essentially that. It's not to scale. It's not like, you know, Pepsi only does work in the Arctic. Uh, it just meant to represent that corporations now run the world, that corporations have more power than nation states. And that's the difference between the free market nation state capitalist model is that now with under neoliberalism, corporations like coca-cola like pepsi like mcdonald's i think of mcdonald's they're everywhere they don't have to be loyal to one nation anymore because they're all over the world trying to serve billions and billions of people uh and they can if 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 a one specific nation passes specific laws that a, a corporation doesn't like they can easily just move that uh factory, if you will, to another country. The United States can, if they don't like the regulation the government is imposing, like raising wages, they can just take those plants and move them to Mexico, which is why the United States lost a lot of manufacturing jobs uh, throughout the 70s and into the 80s. Uh, those jobs went to other countries where poor people were, you know, stayed poor, even in light of having those new jobs, and why uh, climate change rapidly accelerated as a crisis, global warming, because neoliberalism allowed companies to do whatever they want environmentally, right? They were not regulated. And here are pictures of uh, workers in a maquiladora. And here you see the uh, current rise in working class solidarity in places like the United States and the Amazon labor union efforts taking place across the country in addition to Starbucks and Frito-Lay and Kellogg's. There are so many workers and so many uh, corporations that we don't hear about. Again, because these, these are not cultural wars that they want us to know about. These are This is class warfare. That is what creates all the other culture wars in the first place, right? This is how you create the other, the subhuman, the less than. I am the master, you are the slave. So that model of dehumanizing other people in order to profit off of their dehumanization is what gives rise to the culture wars. They want us talking about the culture wars. They don't want us talking about solidarity among workers in order to overthrow the very the conditions that allow for culture wars to exist in the first place. Hopefully that makes sense. So some examples of um, groups that would fight against the inequality of uh, that was happening in the United States and that were protesting things like the Vietnam War that were emerging right around the time that capitalism was trying, was not trying, that was, was changing, morphing, evolving to what we now understand to be neoliberalism. It happened at the same time. That's that synchronicity between the development of capitalism, the evolution of capitalism, and the development and the evolution of identity politics. They paralleled each other, therefore they impacted each other. And by that, I mean capitalism evolved in such a way that it had the power to absorb the radicalism of these movements and neutralize it sound like a rage against the machine so, and neutralize it, but that's essentially what happened. So this slide just basically represents the militancy, the radical leftist politics that was associated with what you tend to think about as the identity politics of the 1960s, but these were not identity politics movements. These were radical leftist movements that were very much based on a working class solidarity model of 
seizing the means of production of being an agent in your own existence and not depending on the state and not depending on this charity model of trickle down economics or trickle down human rights that you were going to take land back for example so the american indian movement for example they took over alcatraz they occupied alcatraz so that warning keep off indian property and the fact that you're going to notice a lot of these people are alarmed because they were not afraid to fight violence with violence. They were not gonna engage in the peaceful protests of someone like Martin Luther King, because then they say they saw the limitations of those models. And you see that with the Black Panther Party picture in the middle there with uh, two gentlemen holding rifles, talking to a police officer with uh, white women in the background standing, looking terrified at the fact that, you know, and this is why, Black men were not allowed to have rifles and or weapons during the American Civil War, right? It was scary to think of the fact that they are now empowered to that degree. And finally, you have a, a, a young Chicano woman as a member of the Green Berets, Green Berets, sorry, the Brown Berets, Green Berets evolved as a response to what happened in Cuba and the guerrilla warfare uh, initiated by people like Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. You can look that up. The United States Army looked at Cuba and said, we need something like that. Let's develop our own special forces, call them the Green Berets. The original Green Berets were the guerrillas fighting the Cuban revolution like Che Guevara and Fidel Castro. So here we see a brown beret, a young Chicana with a picture of Emiliano Zapata, the famous Mexican revolutionary in the background. You see the bullet vest, uh, across again, across her chest, again, speaking to the militancy, to the hardcore radical leftism of these uh, movements that were not necessarily focused on identity politics, but forcing on, focused on overthrowing the state or changing the material conditions of existence. And in many ways, I think this is what made Fred Hampton's Rainbow Coalition so dangerous, is that what Fred Hampton did is he highlighted the possibility of these groups overcoming their different racial backgrounds and cultures and unifying around the problem of political and economic disenfranchisement. The Rainbow Coalition essentially emerged out of trying to give children, kids, breakfast before they went to school because they didn't have access to it. They were poor. So poor kids that don't eat breakfast have a hard time learning in schools. This has been scientifically proven to us now. It's a no brainer. But, you know, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, this was news to a lot of people. It's like your child needs to eat before they come to school or else they're not going to learn. Fred Hampton and Rainbow Coalition started as a Black Panther Party first, but then they started to recruit uh, other groups crossing cultural uh, boundaries. And there you see, for example, at the top, I think that's Fred Hampton, I'm not sure, but he's speaking uh, to a group of organized, I think these were uh, um, the Southerners in Chicago at the time, they had their own group and Fred Hampton famously visited and went and recruited him by telling him, look, I know that you're black. I know I'm black. I know you're white. I know we have our cultural differences, but at the end of the day, your kids are not eating the same way our kids are not eating. We should go talk to the Latinos also, the Latinx community and recruit all of us. And you see, that's what that solidarity at the bottom left-hand corner represents. It's the Rainbow Coalition was highly successful as a working class solidarity model that crossed racial and cultural lines. And that was a big threat to the United States government. So much so that they had to assassinate a young 20 something leader in order to neutralize the threat posed by that working class solidarity that did cross uh, cultural racial lines because at the end of the day what brought them together was their poverty and the fact that if they came together they could overcome their poverty in addition to their racial and cultural differences 
under this idea of working class solidarity. Uh, and they were not, and again, this is not group, these are not movements that define themselves according to a specific identity. I think the concept of a rainbow coalition already shows that. It's the idea that you unify identities that are experiencing similar conditions of existence, working class solidarity, and you can make changes based on that. You are more empowered the more people you have in your movement, the larger your movement is. So identity politics, as we actually understand it, is not what we're seeing in these slides. Identity politics emerged in the 1970s, uh, and it emerged from scholars and activists that began discussing the limitations of the 1960s revolutionary model uh, and introduced the concept of intersectionality. And we have here uh, pictures of three very famous activists slash scholars. Uh, we have Kimberly Crenshaw on the far left in her book on intersectionality, Patricia Hill Collins, radical feminist, black feminist specifically, and her book on intersectionality as critical theory, and uh, Gloria Saldua, the famous Chicanx uh, activist, scholar, and the edited collection of essays that her and Cheri Moraga uh, did, which is uh, excuse me, this bridge called my back, which is, again, highly intersectional collection of essays. So uh, during the 70s, that's when um, women specifically, uh, but uh, also people that identify with different sexual identities started to advocate for an expansion of what the groups like Black Panthers or the Chicanx movement or the American Indian movement, as it was called at the time, uh, what they what they determined to be a member or a person that belonged to that group. So in an effort to expand that, they introduced a concept of intersectionality that is not just about race and class, but it's also about gender and sexual identities uh, or sexuality. And as a consequence, though, that became uh, a key concept to recognizing the highly diverse um, diversity that already existed in these marginalized communities like the Chicanx, like the African-American community, like the uh, indigenous American, Native American communities, that there were already others within those already othered uh, uh, communities. And as a consequence, uh, they, uh, cre they created a concept called identity politics or people created the concept. I'm not granting that to these three activists that you see on the slide, I'm just saying it emerged from that effort to try and expand. Uh, so by the 1980s, the radical identity politics, if you want to call it that, of the 1960s, the radical leftism of the, 90s, of the 1960s, that became identity politics, starts to get rebranded as multiculturalism. Again, this happens in the 1980s, uh, which goes well with the neoliberal model of globalization, uh, some type of utopic global village. Uh, and this is an important strategic maneuver by the state, uh, as multiculturalism was an easy way to celebrate in a consumer manner uh, the diversity of different cultures and different identities, emptying out the radical politics of any kind of revolutionary platform. So it absorbed the identities, it absorbed uh, the communities, but it emptied, it emptied out the radical politics that used to exist in the 1960s. Uh, and therefore, there were no longer the same type of critiques of the social problems that originate with capitalism. Uh, and in many ways, this can be seen in this, uh, in this slide where neoliberalism creates an identity politics that later is 
rebranded as multiculturalism. And so by the 1990s, radical critiques of racism and economic polarization are rebranded again as multiculturalism. Uh, and that arises from a rapid globalization or global development. And thus after, for example, Bill Clinton left office and I refer to Bill Clinton because he signed NAFTA and that's supposed to be a big moment in, globalize, uh, in globalization and the global political economics of neoliberalism. Um, less than a decade after Clinton left office, Obama would come in and represent uh, the, you know, the apex, the, the peak of racial progress in the United States because he would be the first African American president. And as the first, um, first African American president, uh, he not only represented racial progress, but he was supposed to represent some kind of uh, symbolic hope and change as the campaign, uh, that was the campaign model. Uh, but at the end of the way, it got appropriated by the United States as an identity politics. And it's not a coincidence that Barack Obama, the first African-American black president, his response to the crisis of 2000, the economic crisis of 2008 was to bail out the corporations and banks responsible for corrupt practices that resulted in the crash in the first place. So the irony of this is that this wonderful historical moment of the first black president in the history of the United States uh, being sworn in, the irony is that the first major political legislation or act that he engaged in was to offer corporate welfare to Wall Street, uh, which speaks volumes as to why identity politics, again, progress, first African-American president in the history of the United States, bailed out Wall Street. It shows why identity politics will never be a successful platform for revolutionary change. So in conclusion, it's important to understand that one of the uh, the common theme that I'm trying to highlight here is that identity politics cannot escape the appropriative, appropriative, assimilative powers of capitalism is because the racialized other always functioned as either a commodity, a spectacle, or a commodity spectacle. We have never been equals and we will never be seen as equals in that regard because the legacies the ghosts of settler colonialism and imperialism still haunt people's understanding of what non-Europeans or the global people from the global south are or what they represent or what their humanity is. The only time we're recognized as equals is when we're assimilated under something like a multicultural model. And this is why I include this slide. Not only does this picture of Barack Obama uh, standing next to Bill Clinton represent a kind of continuity of democratic presidents, right? We had George Bush in the middle there, separating them both. But here you have the good guys, right? The, the Democrats, the liberals. And at the end of the day, they're the ones that helped neoliberalism emerge, which again, um, took away, de-radicalized, if you will, the leftist politics of the 1960s that got in many ways expanded uh, and rightfully so in the 1970s, but by the 1980s became something that is easily appropriated by corporations and that's what's called multiculturalism. And this picture uh, on this big picture at the top of a Black Lives Matter slash Trans Lives Matter uh, protest represents that kind of 1960s radical leftist uh, 
politics that I think people are starting to rediscover. But what happens at the end of the day is that, you know, oh, you want gender fluidity in terms of your LGBTQ plus community, we can incorporate that into capitalism and you can consume it as a bumper sticker, as a t-shirt, as some form of consumption that identifies you as being for that politics, but essentially at the end of the way, limits your politics to a politics of consumption. So that's what this United Colors of Benetton uh, picture at the bottom represents. It represents racial diversity, international diversity, and gender fluidity, all the things that we seem to be fighting for in terms of rights, but it de-radicalizes the politics and just reduces it to consumerism, which is what is multi, what multicultural marketing is all about. And multi, multi, multicultural marketing emerged in the 70s. That's when people started to discover the idea that not only do these racial others in the United States, like African-Americans and the Latinx community and Asian-Americans, not only do they represent a kind of otherness that's non-European, they represent new markets to be exploited. And that's what happened in the 80s, and it exploded in the 90s. Think of how hip hop evolved from marginal music that you had to basically get off the streets to a giant industry that uh, platforms individuals like, for example, Jay-Z, and just think of the evolution of Jay-Z from being the guy that's slanging in the ghetto to being a guy that's doing ads for Tiffany. That is how easily the radicalism of an individual or the radicalism of a movement can be appropriated by capitalist structures, specifically neoliberal ones. So in conclusion, it's important to understand that the common theme here, again, is that there is this reduction of the racialized other to a commodity. Whether it's the racial other as pure commodity, you are a thing to be used, you are cargo to be put onto a ship, you are a commodity to be sold on an open market, you are a human commodity that is going to be put into the field and your humanity is less than mine, therefore I can whip you into working more efficiently or discipline you into behaving the way that I want you to behave or disciplining you into being a docile body that therefore just takes orders and is barely surviving as a body because you are just a body like an animal, like a, like a tool to be used, to be bought and sold, to be uh, transported on a boat like any other form of cargo when in reality these are human beings. But again, that's a common denominator. The racial other has always been a commodity of some sort or another, whether a resource to be used literally in terms of their body, or perhaps the lands that they inhabit, or perhaps the cultures that they give rise to. Those are appropriated, and before you see it, before you know it, those things are literally for sale. And if you're not being commodified as a human being and reduced to a tool, then you are used as a spectacle. And this is what this slide represents, right? These are racialized minorities on the left hand side of the picture. You have Native Americans, uh, indigenous peoples that were taken to Europe and put into European uh, dress, to European fashion and see what they look like as a spectacle. In the middle, you have a young African girl who's being paraded on tour to, uh, in front of all these white people who are coming out to see what a black African looks like and feeding them as if they were a kind of zoo animal. And on the far 
right, you see a picture of the of an, of a, again, a white individual in Africa engaging in a kind of missionary anthropological study, again, using the other as a form of spectacle, studying the other as if though they are an object to be studied rather than a human community that you should ask permission to enter as opposed to feel free to enter based on those legacies of settler colonialism and or um, imperialism. And finally, you have the ultimate commodity, which is the racial other as a commodity spectacle. And this is where I included Jay-Z and Beyonce. That's them doing an advertisement on the top left-hand corner uh, for Tiffany selling jewelry that most African-Americans and most racialized people around the world and the global South in general cannot afford, right? But doesn't keep them from banking it by making an advertisement for a corporation that probably engages in, in neoliberal imperialism by going to other countries and getting the diamonds out of there using child labor. Uh, at the bottom, we have a picture of Kanye West and Elon Musk, again, a reference to this, uh, the other as a spectacle. Here we have Kanye with one of the richest people on the planet. And what is the relationship between these two people and how is Kanye amplifying Elon Musk's uh, visibility by allowing himself to be essentially used as a kind of commodity spectacle to the point that he's coming out recently and defending Elon Musk, buying Twitter, or at least trying to buy Twitter, uh, defending people who are attacking Elon Musk for doing that. Suddenly Kanye is defending a person whose parents owned mines in apartheid South Africa. That is an example of not only imper the legacies of imperialism and how they allow people like Elon Musk to uh, become billionaires, but it also highlights the fact that the radical black uh, leftism of the 1960s or something like the Black Panther Party is not necessarily being practiced by either Jay-Z or Kanye West in these examples. Their wealth belongs to them as individuals and it's not something to be redistributed for the purposes of raising up your community. That is not what's happening. And finally, the ultimate uh, spectacle, Jay-Z with the actual ex-president or current, I forget when this picture was taken, of the United States, Barack Obama. And the idea being that here we see the ultimate union of the commodity uh, spectacle uh, in terms of the racial other. Jay-Z, who I already talked about, and Barack Obama ends up being a commodity spectacle himself because he is a walking symbol that the United States has already achieved racial progress because you could not have an African-American president if that were not the case. And yet a few years after uh, Obama leaves office, we have the George Floyd uprisings, basically because we have seen the hardcore racism that exists in police departments, specifically like the New York Police Department or the Minneapolis Department, which have documented systemic racist problems in terms of their personnel and in terms of their leadership. So that is why I make the argument that the commodity, that the, excuse me, that uh, identity politics cannot serve as an antidote to capitalism uh, and capitalism's discontents, capitalism's crisis, because at the end of the day, identity is something that capitalism has always used in order to advance itself, uh, whether it's the white identity politics of early capitalism or whether it's a multicultural neoliberal politics being used right now in order to promote uh, a very late stage capitalism, that neoliberal capitalism. 
identity is not the answer. If it's going to be one, it has to be working class solidarity. And if there's an, an identity to be promoted, it's the identity of the worker and who constitutes a worker, what is a worker, and raising those people up rather than the individualist model that neoliberalism promotes. So just to end, um, let's not forget that even in a polarized capitalist political economy like ours, this spectacle sometimes fails and the reality of people's frustrations come across loud and unfiltered. And this is evident in this uh, slide, I believe. Uh, we see the burning of the third precinct here in Minneapolis. We see the takeover <laughs> outside the CNN headquarters and we see um, NYPD uh, police vehicle on fire. And the point is that all these three pictures represent something that capitalism cannot absorb, it cannot sell. You can't sell, hey, go burn a precinct, hey, go take over uh, a news uh, headquarters or uh, you know, destroy property. And that's the main thing as racial others and who are always already commodities in some form or another, the last thing we're gonna be encouraged to do is to uh, gather around the concept or come together around the concept of overthrowing property, of uh, prioritizing the health of individuals as opposed to the health of corporations and banks. And that is what has been happening in the last two years when all the labor unionizing and organizing that's taking place and what we saw in regards to people taking to the streets in order to protest their relationship to the state. This could be the beginning of a working class politics. This could be the beginning of working class solidarity. This could lead to the formation of a working class party, but we'll see because again, the duopoly and neoliberal capitalism is really good at distracting us from talking about those issues that affect our material conditions of existence and getting us talking about other issues uh, that have to do more with culture wars that distract us from the things that can actually improve and change our lives. So I'll leave you on that note. Uh, thanks for tuning in. Hopefully uh, the slides were not too distracting and you can still see the little mini me in the corner uh, talking, doing hand gestures and all that stuff. So I hope to uh, upload a new uh, episode uh, sometime in uh, mid to late May, but hopefully mid May uh, with a very special guest that uh, hopefully we'll talk about geopolitical issues around the question of who constitutes an acceptable asylum seeker or refugee and who does not and why. So until that next episode, uh, make sure to watch your six, stay frosty, y hasta luego. Oh, and don't forget to please subscribe to future episodes if you enjoyed today's. Thanks.